Hello, welcome to Critical Line Under. My name is Tom Ravlick. Thank you for joining me. History is extremely important in the first draft of history, as many people would tell you, is done by journalists. Jeff Kidney has been doing the first draft of history for more than 50 years in various areas, uh, whether it be in Western Australia, in Canberra, uh, our national capital, as well as overseas. He has published a book through Wilkinson Publishing called Beyond the Newsroom. It's a collection of a raft of writings from his diverse career. It doesn't uh, doesn't give you everything he's absolutely written, but it touches on a range of issues. He joined me for this podcast to talk about a range of things that he's observed both in politics, in international affairs, and also trends in the newsroom. It's a fascinating chat. We pick up the conversation where Jeff starts talking about his background. Listen in. Well, I um, I grew up in the southwest of Western Australia. My father was uh, an apple orchardist and for a short period a politician in the Western Australian Parliament. Uh, he wanted me to be an agricultural scientist. Um, that didn't really appeal to me. And through various sort of accidents virtually, um, I got offered a job on the local newspaper, which is called the South Western Times in Bunbury in Western Australia. And um, I had a short period there before I went further south to the tall timber country of the uh, Manjimup in it's about 200 k south of Perth. Uh, I then got recruited by the Perth Daily News, which was then the afternoon newspaper in Perth. I had a couple of years there, was then posted to Canberra as their political correspondent. I arrived in Canberra on the weekend of the Bass by-election, which was sort of the beginning of the tumultuous last, what, five, six months of the Whitlam government. Um, I uh, then subsequently was hired by Fairfax to be political correspondent for the the then National Times, now defunct. Um, And uh, from there, I I moved to the Financial Review um, I worked for the Financial Review till the mid early 90s. Was moved to then to the Herald and the Age. Um, then went off to Europe to be European correspondent for the Fairfax Papers. Came back to Australia. Was um, uh, international editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. Then uh, back to Canberra for a stint. Uh, before I was sent off to Europe again, this time to London. Previously, I'd lived in Berlin. This time it was London for the Financial Review for five years. Then came back again to Canberra, uh, this time as a columnist for the Financial Review and uh, until I took early redundancy and now do freelance stuff for various outlets around the world. And just that brief montage of your career, if I could call it, that is fascinating. Um, If we can start with the perspective you had on the ground with the Whitlam Whitlam era, the Palace Papers were recently released. You're kind of rare in that there would be only a handful of people active in journalism today who were actually there on the ground and then uh, a good 45 odd years later see the release of the palace papers what was it like in canberra for you then 
Um, well, firstly, I think there are four of us left from those who were on the front steps of Parliament House on November 11th, 1975. Paul Kelly, Michelle Grattan, Nikki Sava and myself. Um, I was a very young journalist then, 25 years old. Um, I was had only recently arrived in Canberra to cover politics. Um, it was just absolutely sensational. I mean, it was extraordinary beyond description almost, what happened and what the feeling was that day. And in all, the, all these years later, um, it's still the most sensational story I covered, even though I've covered, you know, all sorts of events, including wars in Yugoslavia and, and uh, the Russian presidential election and a whole lot of other things. Um, it, was, um, it was just extraordinary. I, that day, spent oh, several hours just dictating copy to my newspaper in Perth um, and um, the, that the sales of that paper that day were a record that have, were never broken until it ultimately it became defunct as well. I think just about every paper I've worked for up until the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the, and the Financial Review no longer exists, which says something about our industry. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, it, it, for someone 25, 26 years of age as you were then, uh, walking into what would have been a maelstrom uh, politically, um, how, I mean, did the experiences in journalism up to that point prepare you for the degree of uh, controversy that you were going to confront? Um, yes, in a way. I mean, I, I was very lucky to be to start on country newspapers and where I had to do everything. I mean, I was uh, in, in Manjimup, I was the only person. And so I had to write the stories, take the photos. Um, the, the paper was printed in Bunbury, uh, 100 kilometres away. Um, and I had to sort of decide what stories went where and all that sort of stuff. And also, you know, you cover absolutely everything when you're in that sort of role. Um, but um, I had, when I, when I moved to Perth for the Daily News, they pretty soon sent me off to cover state politics because my father had been a state politician. Uh, I'm not sure why that qualified me to do it, but anyway, um, that's what I did. Um, and there were, I think the most sensational event of that, that period was actually invo involved Gough Whitlam as well, where he came to Perth in, uh, just before the night. He was actually on the election trail for the 1974 election, and um, he held a rally in Forest Place, which is a very famous public forum in uh, the centre of Perth. And uh, it was not long after the Whitlam government had got rid of the superphosphate bounty for farmers, um, which was quite a generous um, payment. Um, a huge crowd of farmers turned up uh, for the rally and it turned extremely nasty. Um, and uh, I was actually at the front of the crowd trying to cover what was happening and watch what was going on and the crowd became in, extremely crushing in fact we had to get under the stage and crawl through to the back of the stage uh, to avoid being crushed um, it, it, there was real fears for Whitlam safety that day and um, it was when I sort of realized that politics can become incredibly intense and and uh, sometimes quite dangerous so in fact the the scenes on the front steps of Parliament House on the day that Whitlam was sacked were much less threatening. Um, it was strangely, uh, I mean, the crowd was, there were people who were angry, but there was more an inquisitive crowd than, a, than an angry one. And in fact, 
you know, that nothing that happened during that campaign that matched what had happened in Perth uh, that 18 months earlier. What was it about Whitlam, um, in your view, that, that made him... I mean, the, the description you've just given, it, it uh, seems to indicate that he was seen as a divisive figure over in, over in WA. But what was it about him that, that did that from your perspective? Uh, well, I think that, you know, that issue relating to the farm support and so on um, had really raised tempers in Western Australia. Um, WA has always seen Canberra as, you know, um, um, something they have to put up with. Um, if you <laughs> go to WA, you, you always hear people saying, oh, you're from the eastern states, you know, as though you're from somewhere that's, you know, they'd rather you didn't come. Um, I, I remember people, you know, family and others saying to me before I moved to Canberra, get rid of that Whitlam while you're there. So, uh, mind you, I heard them say exactly the same thing about Julia Gillard uh, not long before she got toppled. Um, I mean, Whitlam was, um, you know, he, he, he was, he strode very large on the, on the political stage. He didn't suffer fools. Um, he was um, a potent parliamentary performer. He, um, you know, he really dominated the parliament. Um, and and you know, obviously, the, the economic issues at that time were very, very serious. People really were hurting um, farmers as well as many others. Um, so there was a level of anger, um, you know, that was, um, uh, you know, pretty, pretty potent. And, um, you know, the interesting, I mean, there's a history now, but uh, after the sacking, the Whitlam government, of course, got swept away in, la in landslide. And I think probably lost, lost all but one of its seats in Western Australia. The Labor lost all, of its, all but one of its seats in Western Australia. So, um, you know, there was a, there was a, a sort of a, a traditional antipathy towards Canberra, which was intensified with Whitlam's prime ministership. It, it, this is something that we're still confronting in some ways uh, to bring it to the modern modern day with the way in which COVID is being managed, isn't it? Because we're seeing different state loyalties that emerge throughout the, the debate about who opens borders and who doesn't. Uh, do you see any similarities between the, what we see today and what you saw then on the ground as a, a reporter in the early 20s? Um, well, um, the, you know, the, the state politics, I, mean, I think Australia has always struggled with state loyalties versus national loyalties. Um, I think that's been much less so uh, in the 21st century um, but those, I mean, you know, the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, the, the Brisbane-Sydney rivalry, the West, the West versus the Rest rivalry, um, the, you know, the, those things are all, have always been under the surface. They've never gone away completely. Um, I think because we are a very disparate country, we're very spread out, um, you know, we're still inside uh, of, of the Federation. Um, so... Uh, I'm not that surprised, um, but, you know, it's pretty unpleasant, some of this stuff, I think. Um, you, you know, uh, I mean, state politicians have always played their, you know, states' rights thing pretty hard. Um, Western Australia probably and Queensland harder than anybody. 
um, but uh, you know it's it's sort of come back to the surface, uh, and uh, you know it's been pretty unpleasant, I think. Given that you saw the Whitlam uh, dismissal, one of the biggest stories you you covered in I guess in the in your younger years as a reporter, what was the next? most significant story that you you feel um, rates next in terms of um, you know, pyrotechnics, political machination? What, what, what comes to mind? Oh, Hawke versus Hayden. Um, <clears throat> the dumping of Bill Hayden on the eve of the, um, of the 1970, well, where are we now, 1983 election. Um, that was a sensational event. The you know the fact that on the day that Fraser called the election, Labor changed leader. Um, I mean that was just an extraordinary day, which came pretty close to the dismissal. Um, and um, again, you know, it was a by that time I was working for the National Times, um, so um, it was I was a weekly newspaper, so not quite as urgent in my need to cover it, but. Um, but still, you know, that was an amazing event. And interestingly about that, as, you know, as a member of the Canberra Press Gallery, there was a lot of sympathy for Bill Hayden and a lot of hostility towards Hawke. And um, a lot of people were very, very unhappy about what had happened to Hayden. Um, but, you know, over the years of the Hawke government, um, you know, that changed and people came to even some grudgingly to accept that uh, Hawke was, had been, was a very good Prime Minister. When you say people, people were feeling somewhat put off by the way in which Hayden was treated, right. and this is within this is within the press gallery. You understand? Yeah, that's correct. Now, how does that work when you're actually reporting an event? I mean, we often talk about the beginning uses as a, I guess, a, a case study, Jeff in that people talk about, say, objectivity. And when we, when, when we hear, you know, opinions or whatever else that are, that are sort of editorial views, if you like, um, as a person, as a reader or as a viewer, well, you know, there, there would probably be people who say, well, how can people be objective if they've developed a view on something? Uh, how did that work back in, in that Hayden Hawk uh, scenario. Well, it worked the same, same as it always has worked. Um, you know, ob objectivity is in the eye of the beholder, of course. Um, but um, and you can't uh, observe events. Um, you can't, you know, d do analysis and commentary um, devoid of any understanding or appreciation of the individuals involved. Um, and in that case, um, you had Hayden, who had worked incredibly hard to, uh, to, for the Labor Party to recover from the, the Whitlam years. Um, he, you know, he, and that he put his life on, his political life on the line a number of times to get reforms that he thought made the Labor Party electable, and in fact did. Um, Hawke was, had been a pretender for you know, deck for, for years and years to the leadership. He expected to get the leadership. He was um, deeply frustrated that the party, um, you know, stuck with Hayden or backed Hayden. Um, and so 
in the, I mean, I haven't got any of my, the stuff that I wrote at that time in front of me at the moment, but um, no, I mean, it reflected that view that, um, you know, who was this, who, what was it that, you know, gave Hawke this sort of divine right to, to have the leadership of the Labor Party and to get rid of Hayden. Um, and that was sort of a, a general view, I think. It's an interesting perspective, but we don't, we actually don't often <clears throat> reflect in public, do we, about uh, the fact that you need to, when you're analysing, you need to look at the individuals and look at them in depth and possibly provide your best assessment to the audience, and then you've got the argument for, about bias, um, a lack of independence, all that kind of stuff, when in fact there might be some valuable information being passed on onto the reader. Hmm. Well, I, I think, um, I mean, you know, in, in cover politics, as I did for all those years, um, you actually get to know these people very, very well. Um, you know, they're part of your circle. Um, you know, I knew Bill Hayden, uh, from the time I arrived in 1975, um, you know, um, you bump into them all the time, you talk to them, you don't just, they're not just people who, you're, you know, you report on at some distance, you're, you're um, you know, you're, you're quite close up to them. So, um, you know, that's, that has to be, you know, that has to be part of uh, what goes into your reporting, you, you, you know, who these people are um, and what you know about them, their characters. Um, is part of has to be part of uh, you know how you assess events and uh, and situations and ultimately uh, what you put into the copy that you file uh, for your newspaper or for your, your news organisation. How does familiar does familiarity ever um, impact reporting in an adverse sense? I think it does, and I think it's something that. Um, reporters always have to be aware of. Um, I actually sort of had a personal rule that I would never become friends with a politician. Um, I always thought, I didn't believe that we should socialise with politicians. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you um, uh, had coffee with them and occasionally went out and had a meal with them. But to me, that was always, you know, part of the work. Um, there are, you know, there's some politicians that I, I had great respect for, um, and there's quite a lot that I had no respect for, <laughs> um, but uh, it always seemed to me you should have some sort of arm's length, um, even if it's not perceived, even for your own integrity, uh, that, that should be the case. And I think there have been examples over the years where uh, journalists have got too close um, to the subjects that, in the end, uh, they may have to criticise um, you know, and may have to say things that that person would think would be some sort of betrayal, especially if they thought that you were, you know, a friend or somebody who was sympathetic to, sympathetic to their cause. It's something that uh, has come up in other contexts in recent times. I've, and, well, I hesitate, Jeff. Um, I need to make reference to my area of... Uh, subject matter expertise, when you look at financial services, you look at audit and you look at the development, uh, something people in audit call the familiarity threat, um, the ability to see things for what they are, um, um, as opposed to seeing things in, in a way that 
a person with whom you're familiar might see them, um, or you you write them up, or, or you give them a certain amount of leeway because you know them rather than yeah, actually making a making a making a proper call on it. it is it that becomes an ethical problem, doesn't it, in the journalistic space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I remember days when um, you know, I worked on newspapers where the police rounds reporter um, used to go to the pub with the pop with the with the cops. You know, they, he, most days he'd be down there, um, pick, you know, uh, with the the, the, the local constabulary uh, having a beer. In fact, having quite a few beers, um, he got really good stories about um, road accidents and, you know, he got tipped off when something happened um, that, you know, that the police were onto. But that reporter never wrote a story that was critical of the police or, you know, was a, investigated anything, uh, you know, the, the, any, any behaviour that might have been optimal by the police. So um, I think that taught me an early lesson that, you know, you really, you know, you you have to you have to value your integrity in in this business. Um, people know, people see, um, and more than that, they should should be entitled to expect integrity. And uh, so, you know, getting too close to your sources can mean that you pull your punches um, or you turn away when there are things that are happening that you should be reporting as a as a newspaper reporter or a, a media reporter of whatever kind. Um, have you seen much of that over the career? Oh, as I've certainly seen consistent examples of that um, over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it happens today. I mean, I, I'm not going to name people, but, but um, certainly, I mean, it's... It's always a fine line. There's always a balance between cultivating sources and uh, getting exclusive stories and keeping your distance, keeping you know, you know at arm's length from your sources. Um, but, um, I mean, I know who does and who doesn't. I greatly respect those who do, and I have contempt for those who don't. Yeah, that, that, that's a reasonable call because ultimately it impacts on the way the community sees the profession as a whole. Well, the community doesn't see, you know, how that works. <laughs> um, they, the community has a reasonable expectation that, that you know, that the, the process is, is conducted with integrity. Um, um, they don't see behind the scenes in a way that us, those of us who are very close to it can see it. But, um, um, but you know, you, you can certainly see the results in, in the media uh, if you're, you know, media savvy and, you know, know how the process works. Yeah, the one, one thing you mentioned early on, which I'd love to explore uh, with you, is you, you spent a fair bit of time as a foreign correspondent, both in Europe and uh, both in continental Europe and in London. Um, what was the most significant stories that you recall from that part of your career? Well, the biggest stories were <coughs> related to the wars in Yugoslavia um, and uh, particularly the Kosovo uh, war where I was on the ground in Kosovo during the NATO bombing. Uh, in fact, I was in Belgrade 
uh, on the Serbian side of it. And um, I mean, they were extraordinary days. Um, and that was, you know, in, in terms of its magnitude, the biggest story I ever covered. Um, and um, an extraordinary experience to have, but not a fun experience to have. <laughs> Uh, it had its moments, especially in Belgrade when the the, the bombing was NATO bombing was at its peak, and um, I got arrested and deported. Um, well, I was arrested and told to get out of the country within 12 hours without any means of being able to get out. Apparent um, that was you know that was on another that was on another that was another dimension to political reporting and I or to reporting sorry generally. Um, and I developed a huge regard for a war, war reporters to conflict reporters to those people who, you know, go to conflicts all over the world. And there were quite a few journalists that I met there who had been in Afghanistan, had been in Iraq, um, some had been in Chechnya. Um, to me, some of them, I think, uh, needed the adrenaline rush of, uh, of dangerous reporting. Uh, to 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 continue to do their jobs, but uh, I never got the adrenaline rush. I must say, I was uh, quite happy to get out when I eventually did get out. Uh, how did you get out of Belgrade? I um, when after I was arrested, um, I had to pack my things and go down to the foyer of the hotel um, and uh, try and find some way of getting somebody to take me to the border. There weren't, you know, I knew there weren't going to be many volunteers given the. Belgrade was on fire, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was all a bit nasty. Um, there was a group of people in the foyer uh, and one, it was actually one of the hotel people said to me, you should meet this guy, he, he can help you. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. So he took me over to meet him. It turned out he was Arkan, who was um, one of the leaders of the um, militias that supported uh, Slobodan Milosevic, the, the Serbian leader, um, quite notorious, um, but incredibly charming in that situation. And uh, he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, I've got to get out. I've been booted out. He said, oh, yes, you know, they're doing that all the time. He said, uh, I'll get you a driver. And uh, he got me a driver and he gave me his business card and his mobile number and said, if anything happens on the way, if there's a problem, just give me a call. So. <laughs> um, Took three hours. I can't really remember to get out. Um, we actually uh, had to cross the river uh, Neva, I think it is. No, it's can't remember the name, but it's Novi Sad, which is the second biggest city in um, in Serbia. And um, um, just after we crossed the bridge, it was bombed. About half an hour after we got across, that it was bombed by NATO. If it had, if that had happened before we got there. I wouldn't have been able to get out. Um, anyway, the driver took me to the border, um, uh, had a chat to the, the border guards. Um, uh, he, uh, Arkan had actually suggested to me, take this with you. And uh, he gave me a copy of a book of Serbian poetry, <laughs> all in uh, Serbo-Croatian. And um, um, he said, if, they, if it, there's any problem, just show them this. Anyway, I just took it out. They told me to take the stuff out of my bags. And I took that out. and. That, put it on the top of everything and one of the, the guards looked at it and picked it up and nodded at me and uh, so it probably helped. It, interestingly, that night was the night that two Australian aid workers um, who had been in Kosovo um, disappeared um, 
and um, did not reappear for three months. They were thrown into jail uh, in Belgrade. Um, and that was a, a funny connection there too, because they worked for Care Australia, which was ch chaired by Malcolm Fraser. And over the period that they, they were uh, in detention, nobody knew where they are. I had a lot of contact with Malcolm Fraser. And we ended up having a, a very long meal with a couple of bottles of red wine in Zagreb in Croatia um, uh, at the end of when, when the, 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 the men, I think it was just was after they were released or maybe just before they were released, and uh, got to chat to him about the dismissal. So it was a very interesting uh, you know, uh, result of a pretty traumatic day. It's, it's interesting you mention Arkan because he... Uh, or Arakanas, people in uh, in that part of the world would call it. But it, it, his evolution into a kind of a militia leader emerged from his participation in um, thuggery, <laughs> organised crime. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was also, uh, from time to time, as I understand it, called upon by the Yugoslav secret police to do their dirty work overseas. Indeed. So, uh, and was ultimately assassinated in the exact place, in the exact foyer where I met him and where he um, helped me to get out of the country. So, um, well, it, it, it's interesting because when you, uh, when you look at that history, what happened to him was he, he just became inconvenient yes. uh, to somebody. And the theory is that, and this happened while Milosevic was still around, um, that you know, Milosevic had to effectively sign off on um, Arkan, Arkan having to uh, yeah. be sent on his way because of the, the closeness of the hoods or the criminal element and the government there, uh, including the, uh, the fact that <laughs> they... Uh, the criminals used the soccer club was over there as a right. as a rallying point. And it was uh, Belgrade. Um, what was the name of the club? Red, Red Star. Star. Yes. That's and, right. and 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 and, and the club. Uh, and and you would yes and and you know you and another gang um, was uh, sort of domiciled with one of the other clubs as well. So it's all um, it, well, it's all. He, of course, was convinced that NATO was going to try and kill him. And the reason he was in the foyer of the hotel that night was that he was in the foyer of that hotel every night. Uh, he spent the entire night in the bar uh, with his crowd of cronies um, because he knew that NATO would not uh, try and assassinate him inside the international hotel where all the foreign journos were staying. <laughs> so he was using us as cover and protection. Oh, so you were a human shield. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that moment. That's exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely. The um, and, and and that war was particularly bloody. Ended in, at least in Croatia's case, in August of nineteen ninety-five. Yeah. Um, were you there for? Were, no, I wasn't there for the, that. But I did go. I travelled right through the former Yugoslavia in nineteen ninety. Seven, I think it was. Um, that stage, there was no hostility or no conflict going on, but the the scars of what had happened were incredibly uh, traumatic and 
and you know i mean really very moving um you know the destruction of villages and towns um at that stage even there were people living in bombed out houses i remember um we were near birchko i think it was or no it was um near sarajevo i think um yeah it was near sarajevo because there was a um we we were my photographer christian jorgensen and i were traveling can't remember where we're heading to but um, we had a problem with the car and we stopped and there was a bombed out house and um when just after we pulled up um a, a young guy came out and uh he said can i help you and we said well, you know we've just got a bit of a problem with the car and he said oh we'll come in and have something to eat with us and we said oh okay and we went in they were a muslim family and um in this absolutely wrecked house um his mother was um was cooking a meal and she laid out the most incredibly generous spread of of you know local foods and so on and insisted that we uh eat this you know and take this meal with them um the the hospitality was extraordinary in the circumstances and um she had two boys actually who had fought in the war um who had no jobs and no prospects of jobs and in fact they asked us if there was any way we could help them to get to to uh, germany um which we couldn't but um uh, you know, it was it was really quite an extraordinary situation but so many places that you drove through were bombed um, you know in a particular town of a particular ethnic majority you, everything would be fine and then you drove through another part of the town which was another ethnic minority and that part of the town would be utterly obliterated nothing left standing um so you know you got a real understanding of how incredibly dangerous um ethnic conflict uh, religious conflict um, um racial conflict um religious conflict um religious divisions uh, can be i mean you know, we do not know in this country how incredibly lucky lucky we are to have a successful multicultural society the interesting thing about what you said is my father and i went back to croatia in 2008 mm-hmm. and one of the things my father wanted to do was um when we hit Osijek on the eastern yeah. side of the country uh within um within a day or so we uh, we went to see Vukovar oh yeah okay and we went beyond Vukovar to Vukovar yeah to uh, off Ofchara which is where there was a um where there's a memorial to 100 people who were basically slaughtered in a farm shed yeah. and uh, we went to, uh, we first went to the mass grave and then we went to the actual shed memorial which was really really chilling you're sending chill, chills down my spine um tom just bringing back memories of that time because what we did yeah be the first time i ever saw one of my father's relatives was in an image um that was um it was essentially kind of holographic 
but the room had, you know, the images of all the people they could possibly get the ID cards of on a wall. And the only, and then one of my father's real, sort of relatives who, along the way had a um, uh, ended up being killed in that particular uh, in that mm. particular particular uh, event. So it was quite. Um, you're right. It's quite profound. Mm. We went to Mostar on the um, you know, towards the coast uh, near um, what's it near? I can't remember. Up in the hills, anyway. And I remember we drove into the town, and the Mostar Bridge, you might remember, was destroyed during yeah. the war. Has subsequently been restored, um, but the main street of Mostar was absolutely pitted and potholed by where mortar bombs had fallen. Literally hundreds and hundreds of holes in the main road of where mortar bombs had, had, had fallen. It was quite extraordinary. Um, so anyway, that was um, yeah, they were interesting experiences, and on a on a completely different level to anything that, that I've ever uh, experienced covering Australian politics. Well, you would not. I mean, the only uh, we we don't have any real parallels here. Um, I mean, the only way in which you get even close to something like that would be um, Iraq uh, when. You had Al Qaeda in 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 Iraq conducting sort of you know, essentially religious warfare within the Muslim community. Yes. Um, yeah, between the Sunni and the Shia in that part of the world, which got pretty brutal uh, mm. when it was led by um, Abu Musab al Zarqawi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who uh, who you know wanted to be a part of Al Qaeda, but he wasn't necessarily. Bin Laden's favoured um, favoured kind of operative, possibly because of his level of aggression. Mm. But it, that's, well, that's so, fortunately, I never got to Iraq. <laughs> never <laughs> but uh, Jeff, in all of this, in in, in, um, in all of this bit of a kaleidoscope uh, of a career that you've got, there's something that is worth looking at in more depth with you for the for the remainder of the conversation and that is how news gathering and, and and news has changed because of the way in which technology has impacted it um you spoke about you know, filing copy using the telephone on the on the day that the dismissal hit um you could re you probably couldn't conceive of it moment now when somebody might actually pick up the phone and file just read copy down the phone line no no well um i mean i we used the old-fashioned telephones you know if you're out covering a story somewhere you had to rush you know try and find a telephone box somewhere to, to file copy to <laughs> you um, you know um i in yugoslavia you know and this is not that long ago um, um i did have a mobile phone then but my photographer, there was no such thing as a digital camera. He, wherever we went, he had to carry all his processing chemicals um, with him and uh, a portable darkroom. And, you know, when he, at the end of the day, when he was had to file, send his photos off, we had to find somewhere where he could, you know, sufficiently dark for him to process his, um, his, um, his, uh, you know, his film. 
And of course, you know, that was film in those days. Who, I mean, films go on. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, and that's not long ago. And of course now, um, you know, if there was, if I was there covering a war today, um, you know, we'd be doing live crosses, you know, like we're doing now, <laughs> um, you know, to any, wherever we were, wouldn't matter where we were, we'd be in touch. Um, I think at the end of the Kosovo war, I think we had, yeah, we had satellite phones, that's right. In fact, that's why, well, that's uh, one of the reasons that was given for why the two Australian aid workers were arrested and uh, locked up because they had satellite phones. I didn't at that stage. Um, and there was uh, a belief on the Serb side that they were uh, NATO agents uh, providing um, um, information about possible targets for NATO to to hit. So, um, but now, I mean, yeah, it's um, um, it's twenty four hour news cycle. Um, if something happens, you instantly put it online. Um, a lot of stuff now, journalists self publish that doesn't even get processed by an editor or a sub editor, um, um, and you know you're pretty much on duty all the time. Um, when I started in Canberra, people could file. I mean, they didn't have to start work until two o'clock in the afternoon, or even later, or sometimes coming to lunch at two o'clock and then come back and start work at four and be filing at eleven o'clock at night for their newspaper. Uh, and then the next day, you know, could uh, go and have breakfast and lunch and start thinking about work after lunch. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's just a completely different world. Twenty-four. Our news cycles are okay for you know, some things, but um, do they have an impact on the quality and the accuracy of reporting, in your view? Oh, yes. Um, I think you could say that today the media is much broader, uh, but much shallower than it was. Um, I mean, when, you know, those days when you had all day to get your... To, to gather your facts and write your copy. Um, you had so much time to go around and, and dig down for information and facts and sometimes, you know, um, scoops. Um, now, you know, I think just, I was in the press gallery in Parliament House in Canberra a couple of days ago and uh, two things struck me. Um, one was how few people there were in the gallery now compared to when I was there. And the fact that um, people were filing copy, you know, constantly while I was there, um, you know, that so there are less people, fewer people doing the work. The work workloads, I think, are much greater. Another thing I think is that um, there are many more barriers uh, between the reporter and the subject. Um, you know, there are PR people, there are media advisors, there are consultants, there's... And, and of course, you know, much, much greater security surrounding the place. Moving around Parliament House is much harder now than it was when I was working in, I'm talking about the new Parliament House. Um, you know, it's, there's uh, all sorts of obstacles now, I think, that weren't there. Also, um, you know, the, the bureaucracy, which used to be, you know, we used to be able to deal with the bureaucracy and, you know, find out things um, that doesn't seem to happen now. Um, the level of secrecy surrounding government, I think, is many times greater than uh, than in those earlier days. 
just on that point, because we're talking a lot about uh, whistleblowers and whistleblower protection and press freedom, it, you, where do you think the balance is at the moment in terms of transparency and, and, and politics? There is more secrecy in some respects, but is that simply because governments are keener now than perhaps they were before to use uh, police force intervention to try and silence people? Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. I think the security apparatus, um, you know, since the Iraq war um, has multiplied both in its legal powers um, to uh, prevent the disclosure of information and the consequences in terms of punishing people who do that. I mean, the onus really seems these days to be on, um, you know, the, 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 the threats posed uh, to those who disclose these things rather than the, the perpetrators of things that are being disclosed. There's, the balance, I think, has shifted really fundamentally um, against openness. And yet we also have, um, while, while the official apparatus, if I can call it that, is um, closing the, the aperture, <laughs> if you like, through which things are viewed, um, you've also then got a greater level of proactivity of politicians on social media, with every politician effectively being their own, their own media advisor on Twitter and other forums. Mm. Well, you know, it used to be that uh, the print media was the main um, avenue by which information was spread, by, by, by which politicians got their stories out, their information out. Uh, and that's, you know, for people of my generation, you know, we were incredibly fortunate to um, have that role and, in, you know, that power, you'd have to say, um, these days. I mean, and things started shifting when... Talkback Radio came in, and uh, John Howard became, you know, extremely adept at talking over the gallery uh, to an audience um, that uh, listened to Talkback Radio. Um, now there are, you know, multiples of that in terms of different media and so on, including direct through social media. Um, so that has greatly diminished, I think, the power of the, you know, the the mainstream media. Um, to uh, to you know, um, hold to account uh, people with power. Is there any way of reclaiming that gatekeeper status for the mainstream media, or has it lost it completely? I don't think it's going to be reclaimed by the mainstream media. I mean, it depends on what you call mainstream, of course. Um, <laughs> like, like social media is becoming mainstream, um, but. Um, you know, I can't see in the foreseeable future how, you know, the sort of serious media, if you like, the the, the, the dig the dirt sort of media is going to um, going to have the resources and, and, you know, the resources are shrinking all the time to make an impact as greater than social media. Um, there are still people who do, mind you. I mean, I think um, Kate McClymate at the Sydney Morning Herald um, the investigative teams on s uh, several, uh, it's several out media outlets 
are still doing great work at disclosing things that people don't want disclosed. Um, but they're, you know, that's that's their specialist role, and they do it extremely well, and it's incredibly important work. But the more, you know, the more general media just don't, just can't uh, do that sort of work or do that hard legwork that you know that we used to do um, in the days in different times. Uh, in terms of what you've just said, I want to test the proposition. And I might be being somewhat uncharacteristically difficult here, Jeff. But the just because the uh, opportunity exists to publish immediately does not mean you have to, right? It doesn't mean that it doesn't. But the, it's a brave editor who says, "Look, um, let the others cover that. Um, we'll." We'll we'll hold off and um, and you know find something a, a bit more substantial, do a bit more work. Um, you know the, the the nature of things now is that um, media um, you know advertisers um, those who want to reach the public through the media um, no longer look at circulation of newspapers. I mean they do to some extent, but nowhere near to the extent that they used to. Um, what they look at is hits on news websites. Um, that's, you know, um, uh, that's what, that tells them how wide the reach is of that organisation. And therefore they go for those that have the, the most hits. So, um, um, and it's you know copy a lot of copy these days is is what people refer to as clickbait. <laughs> you, you get something that is a bit sensational or or is you know news broken before others have broken it um, to get people to click on your stories or on your website, and then that ultimately influences um, where the advertising dollars go and therefore the resources uh, and therefore the ability to to do the job. Does it also explain in part why we have some, uh, shall we say, extreme views or uh, certain vociferous views on on issues coming from columnists in the newspapers in order to get yeah. eyeballs? Yeah, I think you've got to, got to attract attention. You've got to say things that um, people say, oh, gee, you know, better click on that and see what that's all about. I think it's meant that there's a lot more opinion well, there are a couple of reasons why there's a lot more opinion. One of them is, you know, to get noticed. The other is that opinion is much cheaper and easier to produce than, you know, hard news. I mean, you know, the amount of time that Cape Climate would spend digging to get a great story um, is um, vastly greater than, you know, the, the time that's required to sit down and knock out, you know, a, um, um, a controversial comment piece. So, and... That's a big problem, I think, that so much now is commentary and so little is you know, news of substance. And that's, um, you know, that's a worry, I think, for, for a democratic society. Now, we're talking on the... Uh, what brings us together is the fact that you've got a, a book out. It's called Beyond the Newsroom. Now, how in heaven's name do you try and summarise 50 years? <laughs> Well, you, you, you can't. I mean, um, all you can do is um, is select some res representative work, um, 
and um, I mean, this is not an exhaustive um, look at that career. It's uh, it's a dip into various aspects of the work that I did over those years. Um, basically, I mean, what I did was go back over uh, stuff that I've written. I've um, had, um, you know, I've kept good records of the stuff that I wrote. Um, the librarian at the Sydney Morning Herald in the press gallery, Gabriel Hooten, was brilliant brilliant at um, cutting and pasting everything that the reporters wrote, and I think she probably still does. Um, so I had boxfuls of, um, of papers and stuff that I sorted through and and just basically picked out things that I thought um, sort of represented the, the, the various aspects of my career, but it was actually very hard to do that. And some things that I would like to have had in the book, just it just wasn't possible we would have had a book, you know, the size of an encyclopedia. So. <laughs> Um, so it's 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 a collection um, of what I think are you know, relatively interesting pieces um, that you know cover the or span the events of my career in the business. Jeff, um, where can people get hold of the book if they're interested in dipping into the work you've done and understanding a lot more about journalism and and, and various parts of domestic and international history? Well, the first place to start is with the publisher, which is, um, and the website is wilkinsonpublishing.com.au. Um, I see now that it's available on most of the, probably all of the, the websites of the major bookselling organisations. Um, I think the book is probably now in bookshops. Um, so um, um, there are various, various ways of getting it. Jeff, uh, and I look, hope people take the opportunity to have a look at it. The, the chat's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you for joining me today. My, my pleasure, Tom. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, there won't be another book, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah.